Masters in Business is brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today on the podcast, I have Roger Lowenstein. He is a journalist and author, and we spoke for 90 minutes. I'm not going to make... I'm not going to take too much time in this intro uh, because there's plenty to hear. The The book that I've always adored of his uh, is When Genius Failed, The Story of Long-Term Capital Management, and we do a deep dive into that. I use that book extensively in my prep work for Bailout Nation, as well as another book of Roger's, which was Origins of the Crash, which talk about all the factors that led to the 2000 crash. We go into a lot of details on some of this. Some of this we really just skip over um, and talk very lightly about. So it's 90 minutes. It's a fantastic conversation. And rather than me babble, I'm just going to send you uh, right to the podcast and broadcast without further ado, my conversation with Roger Lowenstein. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, I have a special guest, author, raconteur, uh, journalist, Roger Lowenstein. You probably know him from what is actually one of my all-time favorite books, When Genius Failed, The Rise and Fall of Long-Term Capital Management. But he is also the author of Buffett, Making of an American Capitalist, Origins of the Crash, which I thought was a really interesting book that I used as part of my research for Bailout Nation, End of Wall Street, While America Aged, How the Pension Debts Ruined General Motors, and his most recent book, America's Bank, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve, Roger Lowenstein, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, always good to be on your show. Um, is this the first time we've had you on this? This will, well, you don't know if it's, well, it's good to be on the show. It's always good to be with you. That's a different so, story. So That's always good to be in your company. Roger and I know each other for a few years from similar circles. We had lunch not too long ago. Last lunch summer. outside the library, I think, the Bef- public While library. you were working on that book, and we talked about your process and your research, and I really want to get into it. But before we start talking about America's Bank, let's talk a little bit about your history. You were at the Wall Street Journal for yeah, better was, part of a decade. Is I was that right? At, uh, longer. I was at the Wall Street Journal for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always had uh, loved being at the Journal. Always had kind of books in my veins. Mm-hmm. And you it, always knew you wanted to be a writer from early on, or how did that evolve? Um, early on, I can't tell you, you know, when I was uh, a reporter on the Cornell Daily Sun, if I was thinking of books or not, but I was always what was called an egghead back in the day uh-huh. and loved Today we books. call it a wonk. A wonk, a that's right. That word didn't exist back mm-hmm. uh, in my Cornell days. And I was looking for a book, you know, as my career at the Journal went on, and I knew something about this investor out in Omaha who, who actually at the time we're talking this the, investor we're talking the early 90s so no one knew who really he knew who I he was I wouldn't say no one but not like not he wasn't the icon he is today wasn't on the radio and You're the guy who put him on the map all the time well I think he put himself on the map but but uh I was writing the herd in the street column for the journal and uh, the song Which by the way there is a number of storied Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists who have occupied that good, slot. It was a good chair. And one mm-hmm. was infamous, we won't mention. But um, doing that column and the Solomon Brothers scandal happened, mm-hmm. Buffett flies into New York, and all of a sudden people are very interested in him. And, and so I pitched a book idea, 
and um, did that book, did very well, went back to the journal, wrote a column for a few years, and since then I've, I've, I've written uh, exclusively books. So the Buffett story is kind of fascinating. The Solomon comes in, saves Solomon Brothers, works them out from their headache, subsequently does the same thing with Goldman Sachs in the financial crisis, kind of gives them a capital infusion they needed to stay liquid. You talked a lot and wrote a lot in Origins of the Crash about the previous uh, crisis, the 2000 dot-com crash, but the end of Wall Street was really your story, not so much about the financial crisis, but what happened with Wall Street during that period? Yeah, the end of Wall Street, you know, was about the 2008 mortgage bubble and everything that happened after the the Fed interventions, the TARP, all of that. And the you know the difference between that story and the one we're going to talk about, America's Bank, is this was what a crisis looked like when we had a Federal Reserve and we had a, a strong federal financial presence, as um, opposed to before 1913. We just careen from You're on crisis your own. to crisis. You're on your own, crisis to crisis. Maybe J.P. Morgan will organize a loan for you. If not, Sayonara. Maybe, and, and by the way, Sayonara to the system as well, too. Mm-hmm. So we're going to definitely spend more time talking about that. I would be remiss if I failed to mention your dad. Your father was Louis Lowenstein, and he was really a well-known law professor and corporate executive who pretty much spent three decades dissecting the excesses of Wall Street. If if he was alive today, he would be active on Twitter, he would have a blog, and he would be trashing Wall Street on a fairly regular basis. You know, I don't know about Twitter, because <laughs> I, I remember trying to get uh, Dad, um, uh, my dear and late father, uh, uh, to accept photos and texting on his cell phone. And and um, he was a different generation, but uh, he seriously, he was a law professor who instead of just sticking with um, you know, the standard text that other professors were teaching, said, hey, th- th- there's something going wrong in, in business. I don't care if it's business law or business. This was in the era of uh, junk bond sales and junk mm-hmm. bond excesses. And he really, he was a pioneer in saying uh, the way the prospectuses are written isn't right, the disclosures aren't right, the risks that, that are being taken by mutual funds aren't right. And he was out in front. Very much an investor advocate. Is that a fair uh, statement? Yeah, he was an, an advocate for... Good, fair, open, honest disclosure, transparency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he also warned about the dangers of short-term investing and ignor- ignoring the long-term. The question I want to ask is, how did your father's philosophy affect your your thinking? You know, very much, but we both got into, we sort of both edged into writing careers or, or authorial careers. He was a corporate lawyer for the all of my growing up. And um, I was a journalist. And, uh, you know, in the beginning of my career, I wasn't even a business journalist. And then uh, uh, you know, when I went to college, I wasn't even interested in business. And then at some point, I joined the Wall Street Journal. Around uh, 1979, I joined the Journal. At that time, uh, he was a chairman, of, become a CEO of one of his clients, Pathmark, the, the, the SGC, the supermarket chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, uh, soon after that, he segues into Columbia University to become a law professor. And by now, I'm writing about finance. And as a law professor, suddenly he's writing about finance, and suddenly we're sort of doing a, not the same things, but similar things. This and happened almost simultaneously. Almost simultaneously. He wrote his the, his first two books before I wrote any books, but I was a, a financial reporter. And so, you know, we really, really enjoyed, we would edit each other's books, and it was a relationship, um, there was no tension in it, there was no disagreement, it was just... 
it was a pure love and, and also an intellectual connection, which I treasured. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week, author Roger Lowenstein. He has a new book out called America's Bank, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve. And it's really very much a deep dive into the history and creation of the Federal Reserve. And and it's really apparent to me, you spent a long time doing some really archival research on this. When we had lunch a couple of summers ago, you were already a year or two into the research process. And here it is months and months later, and the book is just coming out recently. What was the research process like for digging into the creation of the Federal Reserve? So, Barry, that's a good question, because my other books were mostly contemporary stories. Mm -hmm. This is a history. Although there is some contemporary aspects relative to what just took place. Absolutely. But most of it is really a deep historical run. You can't go back and interview Woodrow Wilson. You can't interview Carter Glass, Paul Warburg, Teddy Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. These are all big characters in the book. So you go to archives. And... um, you wouldn't believe archives, all of these famous people, either in the Library of Congress or the Woodrow Wilson Library. Like you're doing white glove original documents. It is white glove because you yep. go into the, say, the Library of Princeton and um, they, they almost do a strip search. You can't take in, you know, I can't take my cappuccino in with me because they don't want me spilling my cappuccino, 100-year-old right. original pieces of parchment. Can't blame them. Can't really blame them. I'm not allowed right. to take cappuccinos, by the way, in the living room either, but my, at my house, but that's for a different reason. All the Bloomberg people don't realize this. The entire place is waterproof, so yep. it's, it's quite amazing. So each of these, and there were about 10 different sets of archives, JP, the Morgan Library, of different, basically, bankers and politicians of the time. And what you see when you get into them is that although uh, you can't do contemporaneous interviews, there are no emails, people back then really wrote letters, and they really bared their souls. And I'll give you an example of of, of something you can can learn from then you couldn't learn today. Washington, D.C., obviously, is a very hot, steamy town. Before Mm -hmm. the era of air conditioning, political spouses would take the summer off. That was true in 1913 in the summer when the Federal Reserve Act was really reaching a peak in terms of the legislation. So Ellen Wilson, the president's rather delicate wife, holds up in New Hampshire during the summer. So he's writing her virtually every day. And you're seeing in the archives the problems he's facing in the legislation, which committees and committee uh, Congress people are giving him trouble, what his strategy is. He's telling her, don't worry, the press is writing this. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to do an end run around them. People bear their souls in letters in a way that's more trustworthy than an interview because, you know, you go interview somebody, of course, they're going to tell you what they want you to know. But this is Woodrow talking to his wife or it's Paul Warburg uh, talking to his most trusted comrade or something. And it, it just opens up a window into the contemporaneous activities back 100 years ago. That, that sounds like it would have normally been dinner table conversation if, if the missus was in town. But since he doesn't get to come home from work, how was your day, honey? Here's what happened in Congress. He actually wrote specific details. Do these guys realize this stuff ends up in archives and libraries? Or is it just, hey, I'll be dead, I don't care? What, what's the thinking there? No, they're saving their letters. They're saving duplicates. Carter Glass, who many people may know from the Glass-Steagall Act, sure. but he's also the, the father, legislative father of the Federal Reserve Act, a very fiery guy. He goes to the White House one day, and Wilson shocks him. Glass wants to have on this emergent legislation for this new body, the Federal Reserve, he wants to be run by bankers. 
not by federal appointees, not by presidential appointees. Louis Brandeis, Wilson's advisor, and William Jennings Bryan, his secretary of state, says, uh-uh, this is a new day, a new, a new dawn. This agency is going to run the banking system, has to be presidential appointees. Wilson lays down the line. Glass goes back to his hotel. He's shocked. He's outraged. He's a kind of he's a conservative. Doesn't he? He, he can't he begins to write letters. You can see them today on the Raleigh Hotel stationery. That's where he stayed when he was in Washington. Page after page, he he's exploding off the page. You know, he he huh. wasn't thinking then about his reputation for posterity because he sort of embarrasses himself. He's a, he's finally he says to somebody, "I'm going to call the president tomorrow and see if I can get him to change his mind." No way, Wilson's going to change his mind. <laughs> Wilson's made made up his mind, but um, they they. They bear themselves in a way that that we rarely see today, and it, it just because they're such big characters in history. You know, if if you're a nut for that sort of stuff, it's kind of fascinating. Let me ask a, a, a broader historical question: How come the United States was one of the last major industrial countries to get a central bank? You look at Europe and Japan and elsewhere; just about everyone else had a central bank. Why were we so far behind? the rest of the civilized world. So the thesis of the book is, this is our heritage. We rebel against the English king. Uh, we re- rebel against the central government. What's the first debate in American history? It's Hamilton against Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Hamilton wants a central bank. Jefferson says, no, that's like the English tyranny. The, the, as the settlers push west and the pioneers push west, they're continually saying, we don't want control by New York. We don't want control by Washington. This is recreating everything that we rebelled against. And by the way, Barry, look today. Look to the Tea Party today. You know, they don't want a strong central agency. They want to undo the Fed right now. So in every country in Europe, they sort of accept it. We have an, a national government. We have a national monetary system. Of course, we're going to have a central bank. But in America, you know, a, a good swath of the population remains very touchy about it. Ask Rand Paul. This is <laughs> this is our heritage. And if you look, one of whose the, last book, by the way, was End the and Fed. the Fed. One of the main opponents of the Federal Reserve legislation is Charles Lindbergh Sr., father of the aviator, real populist out in Minnesota. So who held his district until a few years ago in our day and age? Michelle Bachman, the Tea Party rep- you know, crusader. Mm-hmm. This is not a coincidence. This is we have this populist, suspicious mindset in much of the country that always feared in Andrew Jackson's day, in Woodrow Wilson's day, and today, that if you have a central bank, Wall Street's going to run it. They're going to be in cahoots against the common man and so on. And that's that's our legacy. There are people who wouldn't disagree with, with those fears. Let, let me ask you a question about the most surprising thing you found about the Fed in your research. What really leapt out and surprised you? You know, I was surprised at how similar the eras were. People, mm-hmm. we had a financial crash uh, in 1907. We had a bank panic, a real panic, by the way. I don't mean red lines in the computer screen. I mean people running to the street corner to, to take their money pre out. Pre-FDIC, pre-account guarantees. Pre-really any, any federal right. supervision, the control of the currency. One guy in Washington, that was it. But people were... Some people wanted deposit insurance. Some people were afraid of moral hazard. That idea was, um, you know, very current. Mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan steps in. He's kind of a hero, kind of like, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase today buying up Bear Stearns. Six months later, people are accusing J.P. Morgan of having plotting the whole panic. And Teddy Roosevelt says, wait a second, this is getting out of hand. People are people are starting to say that every bank has something rotten in it. They're populist fighting bankers. Uh, there's a, a people who want the gold standard, people who are very upset about it because they think it's too deflationary, too tough on the average farmer, uh, average worker. 
the the um, fights between regions of the country, uh, Republicans and Democrats. Sounds between, just like today. I, I, it's 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 hard to. I was shocked at how uh, current the debates sounded as I read them. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is author and journalist Roger Lowenstein. You probably know him from such books as When Genius Failed, The Rise and Fall of Long-Term Capital Management, as well as Buffett, Making of an American Capitalist. I found Origins of the Crash, about the 2000 crash, to be a fascinating book, and it was tremendously helpful in my own research about compensation and stock options. And and I recall you're the first person who reported about the Heinz executive, who I think it was in 1990, had gotten $100 million, some insane they bonus. Were, back, insane. back when $100 million was real yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, well, was, it was crazy. So let's talk a little bit about your, your research and your writing process. Walk us through through your process. How do you decide on a topic? Where do you begin? Well, if you uh, let's look at the recent book, um, America's Bank. It's a history of the founding of the Federal Reserve. Uh, I was interested in doing a history. I began that one after the last book, uh, which was The End of Wall Street, which was a contemporary story about the mm-hmm. mortgage crash. I wanted to do something historical, and as my editor and I were talking, you know, it was we were very aware of how present the Federal Reserve. Today had been in everything throughout, you know, throughout this experience in 2008, 2009. And she said at one point, you know, it'd be interesting to look at what uh, what the country was like before we had a Fed. How were crises handled? Uh, why was it that people thought, why didn't we have one until so late? Why do they think we needed one? How did they get one? And it just seemed... Uh, it just seemed to fit that it would it would be a, in a sense a great bookend to the the contemporary history we're living today. Mm-hmm. So you said you were working with your editor, and she helped you shape. I mean, we're this. always throwing ideas back and forth, mm-hmm. and and she said, um, and she's not a financial expert per se. She's uh, Ann Gata. She's in my mind the best editor there is, uh, but. She's throwing out topic ideas, and then I would go back and say, hey, is there something to this idea? And started to research um, what went into the making of the Federal Reserve, what else has been written about it, how resonant is it to today? And, you know, I was just astonished. There's this incredible, mysterious trip that bankers and a U.S. senator take down to a remote island in Georgia because the thing is so controversial they got to plot it in secret. There's a, a Wall Street crash, very much like the crash that um, that we just uh, lived through. There are great characters, great presidents, um, financial tycoons, and so on. And at that point, I go back to her and say, I think we got one here. And she says, OK, put it in paper. Because you until you write a proposal, right. you know, anything can sound good uh, in a coffee shop or you know, over the dinner table. But And you're... I think I wrote a proposal about 25, 28 pages, something like that. Mm-hmm. And at that point, she says, wow, this, you, know, you got something here, and let's go. And then uh, y- you do a timeline. Uh, that's, a, that's a, for me, the most important next step. Chronology of a events. Chronology of the events. Mm-hmm. What happens, you know, when does the book start? And, and this book has a background period where we go into the gold-silver debates, the cross of gold speech right. and all that stuff in the late 19th century to set the table um, Paul Warburger is a major character. He, this German financier, emigrates to the U.S. is astonished that our system is so primitive, and right. you know, and he begins to lobby for the Federal Reserve. So when does he come in? When does he come into this country? And you go on with the timeline, so that as you're getting information, you can add 
you can fill it into the timeline so things are where you want to find them when you go to you go to writing the book. So let me talk a little bit about some of your other books. Do you have any personal favorites as a finished work? Which one of those books, the finished product, are you happiest with? You know, it's really, for me as a writer, like asking about my children. Which one of your children do you yeah. like best, of yeah. course? So I like my three children uh, best. Uh-huh. After that, I like my six books. Uh, right <laughs> right now, I'm very partial to uh, America's Bank. You know, it just came out. The um, the history, the historical characters, um, the process of trying to bring them alive um, was just enriching and fun for me. And um, so that's because it's so new, you know, you're, it's not it's surprising, fresh. I would say, that you mentioned uh, Origins of the Crash, mm-hmm. uh, the compensation system. And that for me was really fun to dig into what's really wrong with the compensation system and 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 uh, to flush it out in a way I hope hadn't been done before. Uh, the pension book, you know, in a way that was too early because the, the idea of that book was, hey, we have a real way problem. Way ahead of the curve. Way, you know, we have a problem, but I think it, it still holds up today that mm-hmm. these cities and states, you can't just keep legislating uh, increases saying, you know. And not we'll t- funding them. We'll take, we'll take care of it later. And that, right. yeah, I mean, look around today, you know, Puerto Rico, Illinois, wherever you look, you know, all these cities in California, Detroit, it's it's come home uh, to roost. Um, the the Buffett book was um, really fun to write because I was sitting in people's living rooms, particularly in Omaha, asking them about this little um, precocious kid they knew named Warren who was telling everybody he was going to be a millionaire back in the in the middle of the depression in Nebraska when nobody knew what a million dollars was. Um, you know, so you you like them all in a different way. Uh, when Genius failed was a really tough um, reporting exercise because as much as everybody wants to get in on the Warren Buffett story and say, hey, it was Warren and me, you know, I helped him out on this. Nobody wants to be part of the When Genius Failed story. Nobody wants to be part of a hedge fund that went down. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is author Roger Lowenstein. His latest book is America's Bank, The Epic Struggle, regarding the creation of the Federal Reserve. And we were talking earlier about one of my, not just favorite Lowenstein books, but one of my all-time favorite finance books is When Genius Failed. And not just because it's such a fascinating story, and it is an epic story of of hubris and failure and, and Nobel laureates and people being blind, blindsided by their own uh, failings and shortcomings, but the characters are so vivid, and the story is so amazing. And really, it was the last great opportunity for Wall Street to learn a lesson about risk. And that was really a great missed opportunity. I recall you ending the book um, and ending uh, the discussion of Origins of the Crash with a reference back to, hey, if the Fed didn't bail out Wall Street with the collapse of long-term capital management, what lessons might the street yeah. have learned? So I um, said it in the end of the book, uh, two things at the end of the book. One was, I thought that the Fed on balance um, was wrong to organize uh, the rescue. Of course, it was a private sector rescue, so mm-hmm. no uh, dollars went into it. But you know, when you have the New York Federal Reserve Bank calling in 
the 16 biggest Wall Street firms. That's some pretty heavy pressure. You, you can't say, I have a busy calendar, I can't make you it. You cannot tell the New York Federal Reserve you have a busy calendar. Your chief regulator. And uh, I, I really thought at the time that as dire as the crisis was, that Wall Street and the economy would have worked its way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, you, you don't want the government to come in unless they really, really, really have to. Judgment call, but that was my judgment. And the other thing I said at the end of the book was I, I made a reference to uh, the dot-com bubble, mm-hmm. which was riding high at the time. And, and um, This might have let air out of the bubble before it inflated yeah. so, much, so much larger. But, of course, the real comparison, you know, and people have said this to me later on, was that when Genius failed about this collapse as hedge fund in 1998 was really a dry run and a missed lesson for the mortgage crisis. No doubt about it. For the bubble. You know, so much seems similar. If you look at a firm like Bear Stearns, these seemingly well-capitalized Wall Street firms uh, with seemingly safe assets, you know, mortgage securities, AAA, uh, you know, low-risk rating – uh, all of that, and suddenly nobody wants them. All correlations go to one. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants any kind of these assets. And in, in just in so many, in fact, I did a piece in the spring of uh, 2008, the 10th anniversary of when LTCM began to get into trouble, uh, and right around the time of Bear Stearns, because the the comparisons uh, were so close. The the level of leverage. Well, LTCM, 100 to 1, Bear Stearns, yeah. 35 or 45 to yes, 1. Yeah. That's still a tremendous amount of leverage. Dicey assets. Right. Uh, LTCM was Highland. a lot of backwater Russian paper, as amongst other stuff. Who really knew what securitized subprime mortgages were pre-crisis? That's really something we all kind of learned at once. And correlation is going to 1 when nobody want when the— when the proverbial you-know-what hit the fan, not only did nobody want Russian debt, nobody wanted any kind of debt other than U.S. Treasuries. And the same thing happened, you know, look, in, in, in the fall of 2008, General Electric uh, could not sell its paper. Nobody right. wanted commercial debt. Nobody wanted risky paper with even a scintilla of risk. And just— Like General Electric? Or that just like, at that point— No, General Electric is, is a real example. Uh, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs— which on paper was completely solvent, was running off to Warren Buffett uh, to get capital because he was sort of the only place that they could get capital from. And these examples are just, you know, in 1998, it was just one firm and a few firms around it. In 2008, it was all of Wall Street. Uh, So uh, that was really a missed sign in in terms of limits on leverage, um, reliance on... um, on arithmetic risk measures, which is a really a big theme in, mm-hmm. in when genius fails, these these you know computerized value at risk measures VAR, that tell yes. you you can only you're only going to lose so much. Why? Because the computer says that's that's how much you've lost in, in every every previous day. What about if tomorrow's different? Right. And they didn't learn that lesson in 1998. And what do you know? Suddenly in 2008, tomorrow was different. So you had a firm, Bear Stearns, was trading, what, at 170 bucks the, the yep. stock? 175 179 yeah. I think and, it peaked around that. And, and a year later, it's sold for $2. $2, but yeah. they did lobby it back up to $10. Okay. My favorite picture of the entire crisis, yeah. some wise guy took a $2 bill, taped it yeah. to the front glass door of the new beautiful Bear Stearns building over on Vanderbilt in yeah. 45th, and there's a picture of the $2 bill yeah. with the Bear Stearns logo. That... that is now the J.P. Morgan building, Correct. which they got as part of the deal. Uh, that that might be one of the best assets they picked up in that deal for pennies, literally pennies on right. the dollar. So lost opportunity to um, 
prevent a little moral hazard, inject a little normal risk management. What other lessons do we pick up from, from LTCM that are applicable not to 08, but to today? Well, one lesson is that when interest rates are very low, uh, there's a particularly strong tendency to look for yield elsewhere and to reach to reach. And, you know, how often? Uh, what is it? Uh, hogs get fat, pigs get slaughtered. Is it the yep. reverse? But uh, reaching for a little bit bulls of bulls and bears make money, pigs yeah, get slaughtered. You know, is the old, reaching uh, for extra yield uh, when the safe stuff isn't isn't paying off. Why do you think it's safe? Why do you think the other stuff <laughs> is is uh, paying more yield? And the the way to invest if you want to buy the risky stuff. Uh, Buy it when it's down. Buy it when it's thirty cents in the dollar. Buy then, it after the crisis, yeah, not before. Or at least when it's being dis- when you're getting paid for it. That way, if you're wrong, yes, you're wiped out. But if you're right, you really get paid for it. But but to buy a piece of potentially really risky paper to make um, you know a couple of hundred extra basis points, you know that I think that's really a lesson. And to think that an asset that everyone regards as safe, therefore makes it safe. Look at these. Um, uh, mortgage securities, okay, so triple stand- A rated, Standard Poor's, Moody's, you know, Fitch. They all said they're triple A rated, but how many people really looked at the? Did anyone look at the securities behind them? Did anyone look at the homes behind them? The quality of mortgages, so painfully few. You know, do your own research. Look at what's in those securities. The, the fact that everyone's in them might tell you, in fact, th- that they're selling for a pretty, you know, a, a high price. That they're selling at a premium, and you should be extra wary. And that, that was a lesson that was just skated over. And I, I think the other lesson is the over-reliance on the, um, and I mentioned this before, uh, the arithmetics, mm-hmm. the computerization of Wall Street. Um, don't get fooled by these spreadsheets and these uh, you know, 30-page printouts. L- look at the underlying asset. You know, release your inner Warren Buffett, so to speak. Uh, beneath every security, there's an asset on Main Street. What are the houses really worth? Don't look at the trading patterns. The trading patterns don't tell you anything. All they do is tell you what somebody else was willing to pay for it yesterday. Because when liquidity dries up, that's a meaningless number. You know, there was there was an embedded red flag in the whole proposition, and I heard this repeatedly in 04, 05, 06. This is as safe as treasuries. It's rated AAA, but it pays 250 basis points more. Someone should have turned around and said, isn't that economically impossible? Either it's riskier and paying more, or it's not paying more and it's the same risk. How do you get this wildly disparate spread between two AAA rated things? Everybody ignored that in Bob, the reach for yield. Bob Rodriguez at FPA, the great mutual fund investor, was one of the few people who didn't ignore it. And I think in 2006 or seven, he went to the, uh, one of the meetings of one of the big uh, credit rating houses and he said, he asked them a question. What happens? What's the assumption behind your uh, your your risk ratings on real estate? And they said our our assumption is that the increase in real estate values is going to taper off. And he said, well, what happens to your assumptions if they don't taper off, but if real estate prices are flat? And they said, well, the models will be a little off then. And then he said, well, what happens to your models if in fact real estate prices in the U.S. fall by say two percent a year? And they said two percent a year, two percent a year, not thirty-five no. percent, but is, two percent. And this is this is documented in the book, uh-huh. The End of Wall Street. They said then the model completely breaks down. So here's a model, one of the three big rating agencies on which you know thousands of investors uh, Rely. are relying, and the assumption is that there can't even be a two percent per year decline in real estate prices, and before the next season comes, we're having it. 
5, 10, 15, 20%, 40% drop in real estate That's prices. amazing. For, what kind of hubris is that? For, forget the Great Depression where real estate prices, depending on what data you want to use, fell 50 to 80%. Back then, mortgages were three or five year interest only. You had to roll them over. Right. But just go back to the early 90s and you had a big real estate pullback from the peak of the late 80s. It wasn't unthinkable to see flat real estate here in New York City. You bought something in 89, you didn't get back to break even until 96, 98 or so. How could that not you be know, integrated? There was this myth that real estate doesn't go down. And as you say, there was a terrible real estate depression in uh, basically 1989 to, yeah. to 1991. It hit Texas, it hit the Midwest, it hit New England, it hit New York, hit Atlanta, hit Florida. Um, Everywhere where Moody's and S&P actually operated. Yeah, so I don't know how this... You know, it was a sort of a this time it's different. Uh, same thing with the tech bubble. Uh, you know, this is different, new economy, all that stuff. Um, look, it happened with the railroads in the, in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. Um, we have a lot of railroads today, but those original securities aren't worth anything, most of them. Uh, there's this fiber optic, television, automobiles, name an industry. Crossing. Right. Name an industry. There was a boom and bust, and then you build on the. On the survivors. Virtually all of the early computer makers, the Tandys and so on, they're gone. Computers are here, but those early manufacturers aren't here. People who want to find your work outside of Amazon and RogerLowenstein.com, where else can they see uh, what you've done? You know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, the website, uh, RogerLowenstein.com, and uh, indie bookstores. Uh, I love to sell books in indie bookstores. So. There you go. In independent bookstores. Yeah. We've been speaking with Roger Lowenstein. Be sure and hang around uh, for the rest of our conversation that we'll put up on the web uh, and on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, and, and Bloomberg.com. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my guest this week is Roger Lowenstein, who is actually an author I've been reading for quite a while, and I've been a huge fan of his work. His, his books are, um, how do I say this and not embarrass him? Uh, they are the standard by which all financial writing is measured. There aren't a lot of people who can take a relatively dry topic and make it come to life the way you can. And you seem to f pensions, uh, complex financial instruments that crash on an obscure hedge fund. Stop and think about Even like the Federal Reserve but and thank, the Federal thank Reserve. You. These thank are you. terrible, terrible topics <laughs> that you had to make a compelling pitch for a publisher to say, that sounds like a great idea. And you described the pitch for America's Bank. I remember when Genius Fail came out, that was relatively soon after everything kind of hit the fan, wasn't it? it How deep and long was that dive after the collapse? That was a real rush pace because that book was so, so tied to one event. Um, they uh, that rush pace suits you because that book is so readable. Thank you. You don't even need an interest in finance. It's a great narrative thank in and you. of itself. That book came out. Uh, excuse me. They imploded in the fall, of course, in 1998, and the book came out exactly two years later. So that's a fast You got to research it. You got to write it. The publisher needs, you know, a good eight months to turn around. So it was a, it was a very fast turnaround. You should get Brad Pitt to do a movie version of yeah, that. You know, he should call my agent. We'll option. All right. Well, I think Michael Lewis has him locked down for 
Moneyball was not only a great book, but a fabulous movie. Everything I hear about The Big Short is that it's a great movie. But I think... I would actually like you to play, you know, a lead role. In yeah, okay. Hill. No one wants to see my fat behind on screen. This, When Genius Failed, it's such a great story. It's, it's from a purely... Uh, let me gush a bit. From a purely financial perspective, it's a fascinating tale about... Nobel laurelets and complexity and uh, value at risk and all the other, we talked about all the mathematical um, illusions that create a, a full sense of certainty that lead people to say, yeah, we could buy this obscure paper at yeah. 101. I, but the narrative about all the people is absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you. The the, narr the people really, I mean, you, you opened up by saying, you know, you write about boring topics, but you, you don't make them boring. That's the the people are always dry, the key. not so, boring, dry. Dry. So that's always the key. So you know this America's Bank about the Fed, but it's not about the Fed. It's about Woodrow Wilson and Paul Warburg and J.P. Morgan, Teddy Roosevelt. These people are, are fun. In um, in when genius failed, the um, the narrative in, in a way I think it was almost a template narrative for a financial crisis. You had mm -hmm. these guys who were considered the smartest guys on earth or on Wall Street. So let's go over some of the list. Yeah. You have John Mer John Merriweather, who was head of Solomon Brothers? Or, he was or? The, the head of the risk arbitrage, not the risk arbitrage, the um, uh, the, the trading, the high-powered mm -hmm. trading group at Solomon Brothers. Left. Did this in-house, left with a, a few of his guys, uh -huh. such as uh, Eric Rosenfeld, Larry Hillebrand, Victor Hagani, uh, to start their own uh, hedge fund. Shustak, what is Shustak's involvement in that group? Oh, I can't remember where Shustak came from. Mm -hmm. So, um, but then we also had not one but two Nobel laureates. Involved. Yeah, of course they became Nobel Prize winners during um, uh, during the period in which LTCM was uh, up and running. Uh, well, wasn't wasn't um, Bob Merton right? Uh, but what uh, Mer Myron Scholes didn't he win previous to? No, no, they both won in 1997. Oh, really? so but look, they were. Acclaimed, acclaimed. They right. they had invented, uh, along with Fisher Black, Black the, Scholes, the, yeah. the Black Scholes option pricing theory. So you know who could? This is like getting Jonas Salk to prescribe penicillin. You know <laughs> they are. You know who who could better trade risk? These guys had had amazing. They invented it. They created the method for evaluating risk. They they created the modern method for evaluating a risk in an arithmetic sense, which is different, by the way, than risk. The notion of uncertainty. If you look at, uh, for instance, if you're standing at the edge of the cliff, mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, you see maybe uh, ten people at the edge of the cliff, and you say, I wonder what the odds are that one of those people are going to fall off the cliff. That's uncertainty, not risk. You can't calculate the odds. Mm -hmm. You 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 know that the closer they get to the cliff, the higher the degree of likelihood is. But there's no way of measuring it. However, if someone said to you, what's if I roll dice? What's the odds I'm going to roll snake, snake eyes? I can tell you it's one out of 36. Right. That's the difference between calculated Un arithmetic risk and uncertainty. Most things that happen in financial markets uh, really are given over to uncertainty. What's the risk that some company is going to have a terrible quarter? Is it one out of three, one out of four, one out of eight? Hard to measure. The conceit of these risk managers, of, of, of these scholars, was to, to think that they could turn financial markets from uncertainty to risk, that it could be calculable, that they could determine down to the penny what their risk exposure was, and it turned out to be dead wrong. It, isn't that the underlying issue with all models? You know, the statistician George Box has a wonderful quote, 
all models are wrong, but some are useful. Once we forget that this is merely a useful model and start thinking it's true, it's reality, not just a depiction of reality, doesn't that lead us down the road to increasing the possibility of, of some implosion? Yes, because you, you bet on, look, if, if you'd been, if you'd asked some, uh, uh, some guy with a computer model in the year 2000, what are the odds that we would have a cataclysmic breakdown of the economic system and that unemployment would go to 10%? He would say, we haven't had a real breakdown since the Great Depression. Unemployment hasn't been 10% since the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say the odds are you know, one in 100 that this happens. If you asked him now, he'd say, hmm. Even money. <laughs> Even money, you know. Isn't, so, that, isn't that like the 100-year floods? Uh, they always show these houses washed away on the banks of the Mississippi. Yeah, we're getting them every two years. Yeah, now. right. It's, I, maybe we need to rename the 100-year so flood. that's very different than if you're at Las Vegas. You know what the odds are at Blackjack, and they don't change. So you can make an intelligent mathematical bet mm-hmm. at Blackjack. Securities are different. To, to say the very least. So um, John Corzine is mentioned in long-term capital management in, in When Genius Failed. What was his involvement in, uh, in the hedge fund? He had um, a very significant involvement uh, in that story. And um, to This some... is the former uh, CEO of Goldman Sachs and then governor and senator from Correct. New Jersey. Correct. And... Um, who ultimately ended up running... Um, what was the company that we had a little snafu The New snafu Jersey company with? with a little snafu. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, oh, dear Lord. You'll plug it in. but um, It'll pop in. We were talking about the reading glasses. Yeah. This is another yeah. uh, so uh, he, thing. He, um, MF Global. MF Global. Very good. So I like John a lot. And um, he was a very helpful source to me when I was uh, researching the book. He had um, a large involvement, in some ways a tragic involvement, with LTCM. LTCM um, needed, this is the hedge fund, of course, John Merriweather's hedge fund, needed s- strong financial backers, people who would fund its trades. And they basically went to the main uh, Wall Street firms, so Morgan Stanley, Goldman, Morgan. Merrill, Goldman. And uh, so Goldman was uh, very, very involved in um, uh, backing uh, LTCM. Uh, Corzine at the time was uh, co-chief co-CEO, I believe the title was, with a guy named uh, John Paul, Hank Paulson. <laughs> um, and uh, Goldman, believe it or not, and it is hard to believe because it, it seems so recent, was then a private firm. That's okay. right. Okay. Everybody forgets most of these banks yes. were private firms yes. prior to 20 years ago. So that makes a big difference because you know Merrill Lynch is um, uh, lending some of their credit over to LTCM. So is Morgan Stanley. Uh, so Why is, does it make a difference that they're a partnership and not a publicly traded corporation? Because the guys at Merrill go home at night and don't worry about it. When the guys go home from Goldman, it's their capital on the line. It's a partnership. Right. It's owned by John Corzine and Hank Paulson and the other you know, senior bankers at Joint Goldman. Joint and several liability means that if the firm collapses, they don't just lose their stock options. They lose their entire Correct. everything. They are on the hook as partners Till every partner's assets are exhausted. Right, and, and look, let's let's, you know, at, at Merrill today or at at at, at any public securities firm, uh, the people who are called partners and aren't really partners; they're That's managing right. directors or whatever. They're shareholders. They own a small scintilla of the firm, right. but the part and their liability is limited to that ownership. But the partners at Goldman owned it all, so the exposure to LTCM was their exposure. So what happens as LTCM uh, starts to go down? Uh, is you know, they're scrambling around for money. 
and they're turning to uh, the big Wall Street firms. Uh, John Corsine's very involved in trying to get um, uh, big folks on Wall Street, Warren Buffett, uh, others to put up money. Uh, Goldman thinks about whether it should recapitalize um, uh, LTCM. At the same time, his partners are getting, uh, Corzine's partners at Goldman are getting more and more upset with him because Nancy. they don't want more of their capital at risk. And to make matters worse, Goldman has an IPO scheduled, mm-hmm. okay, right in the middle of this. What do you want to do you know, when you have an IPO? You want to have a roadshow. You want to dress yourself up. You want to look pretty. We're a great firm. We've been around since, uh, you know, Sam Sachs in 1910 or whatever it was. You don't really want to go on the road and say, oh, we got major exposure to the worst hedge fund implosion. Uh, in history. In, in history. And as this is going down, uh, Corzine is battling his partners. As the Fed is telling all the Wall Street banks, you got to go in. You each got to put up uh, a few hundred million dollars. Uh, to bail out this firm, Corzine is getting it from his partners, and he really, um, he really lays his own backside on the line. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, Goldman does join the consortium. Uh, they do bail out uh, LTCM. Uh, the uh, IPO is uh, postponed, but at the moment it's canceled. Uh, nobody knows. Goldman is itself. Uh, suffering huge losses because they own some of the security, same securities that LTCM does. Everybody's getting hurt. Everybody's piggybacking you know, off the same trade. Merrill takes a terrific loss too. Uh, and uh, John Corzine is sacked and loses, loses his job. Uh, and goes into politics. And goes into politics. And, and um, you know, I think we, we talked about MF Global and I, I wondered after that went down if some of that overreaching there was an attempt to regain some of the rehabilitated lost luster right. uh, at at the unfortunate way his career ended at Goldman. But I, I really think um, he was being a citizen of Wall Street and a citizen of the country when he said, we, we got to participate in this. We got to see this thing through. So he fell on his sword. Hmm. Quite fascinating. There's a footnote to the rescue of long-term capital management. Of all the banks on Wall Street, one refused to participate. That's right. So that was Bear Stearns. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the prime bro- broker of um, of LTCM. So um, They said, we have too much exposure to LTCM already. We can't bail them out. We're already on the hook as a counterparty, and we have holdings, and we have this, and we have that. What were the repercussions of that a decade later? Well, so that's a great you know Wall Street parlor discussion. Jimmy Kane uh, didn't want any more exposure. Then it came time to help out Bear. Was anybody going to help them, and so on? Um, I, you know, at the end of the day, J.P. Morgan Chase did come in to buy them at two dollars, at two bucks, right. but um, down from a hundred, almost one hundred and eighty. Right, and with the Fed's backing, right. let's not forget it was only okay. twenty nine billion. Right, the Fed Fed but, agreed to guarantee. You know, Carl Icahn said it. Uh, you want a friend on Wall Street, buy a dog. Right. <laughs> I think if someone had thought Bear Stearns was worth uh, you know, twenty bucks. They would have paid twenty bucks, and everyone was terrified. No one was I, willing I, to step in. Yeah. So, although it, it certainly seemed to be poetic justice, mm-hmm. I think that's the the point you're arriving at, and, and I agree with you. You know, suddenly the tables were turned. I don't think that's the reason that that they came a cropper. I, I you know, people in Wall Street were going to offer whatever they thought Bear Stearns was worth, not a penny more, not a penny less, on account of what they had or hadn't done for LTCM. Mm-hmm. Wall Street just doesn't, it, it's its too cold-blooded a place. Right, it, it's yeah. too bloodless for that yeah. to have happened. But it's still, there's a touch of irony in that 
Here, here's the one firm that didn't participate in, in very, that bailout. It's very ironic. Yeah, it's to, very ironic. to say the least. Yeah. Um, so Look, I, Le- Lehman, Lehman participated. Mm-hmm. Didn't do them a lot of good 10 years later. So. Now, now, my favorite footnote with Lehman, since you brought up the gentleman named Warren Buffett, and not a lot of people knew this. I dropped this into bailout nation. I've mentioned it many times. People say, I, I, don't, I never heard that before. Is that true? When Lehman was spending the summer looking for financing, and we have the Korean financers, right. and we have Bank of Mitsubishi, right. and blah, and all these people who ultimately fell through, right. Buffett made a very credible multi-billion dollar offer to Dick Fold of Lehman Brothers, including, and and by the time we got to 08, uh, Berkshire Hathaway was essentially the Wall Street equivalent of the good housekeeping seal of approval. Yes. And Fold said... Uh, Look at this terrible deal Uncle Warren is offering us. That's right. This is awful. He He's trying to steal the company. It turns out that that was a much better deal that he ultimately ended up doing with Goldman Sachs, a much bigger, better, stronger bank. Goldman got better, worse terms than Dick Fold rejected. Yes, because the... When he when Buffett did the Goldman deal, although uh, Goldman's obviously a stronger firm, the conditions on Wall Street by then had become so much more dire that. But that know, was three months later. It's not like it was years later. It's four months later. But it was after Lehman. Yes, it was, it was after, after Lehman, Lehman said no to Warren and ultimately. Now it turned out. So it, at that point, Goldman was you know everybody was saying, are, are Morgan Stanley and Goldman going to be the next Merrill, the next Lehman? At that point, Goldman was not in a position to negotiate. Right. Obviously, had Dick Fold cut that deal. It's very unlikely that Lehman uh, would have gone down because you know what that would have done for its confidence. But uh, Dick Fold, you know, thought he could get a better deal, and, and he bet wrong. You know, the amazing thing is, Fold did Buffett a favor because between Repo One Hundred Five and everything else, who knows knows how long it would have taken for Buffett to make his money back? Maybe he never makes. His Maybe money he back. never makes it back. That's correct. That's correct. And so we end up with a situation that. Fold being not especially smart, or or let's just say especially arrogant about the deal, rejects Buffett, sends Buffett a few months later into the arms of a much better deal, which ultimately made him a what was it a nine percent coupon, ten percent coupon plus a nice slug of equity. That was a home run for Buffett. Yes, I, I heard Buffett talking about it uh, at Berkshire's annual meeting. I can't recall if it was last year or the year before. But he started to talk about how it was 10%. And he said, you know, uh, we get paid even when we're sleeping. 10%, tick, 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 tick. (laughs) The deal made him very happy. Uh, To say the least. So let's talk a little bit about Warren Buffett. And you wrote a book on him before he was the legend he is today. What was it like researching Buffett in Omaha? What was that process like? It was a lot of fun because – you know, some people are famous because of one thing that happens in their career or because they're successful. But um, if you went back um, uh, earlier in their career, you know, in their childhood, you wouldn't necessarily see that, um, uh, you know, young Michael Eisner was going to be in the entertainment business. Mm-hmm. There are very few people, you know, Steve Jobs is obviously uh, Steve Jobs from the moment, you know, he was different from the beginning. From, from when they were hacking phones yeah, and, and Mozart, long before yes, Apple. And yes. Mozart was writing symphonies you know, from the time he was four. Uh, Buffett was like that. 
he was thinking about making money, fascinated by it, mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, from the age he could talk. He, he walked around with a little change purse, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, like a trolleyman's change purse, you know, you know strapped to the his coins, belt. The coins, the yeah. five, yeah, four exactly. slots for he was, uh, uh, the ice cream change. He was, you know, he was selling Cokes. He was selling lemonades. He was going to the racetrack, looking for used tickets. Every so often you found one that someone had errantly discarded that was worth something. He was telling people as a... Uh, you know, a, a 12-year-old boy, he was going to be a millionaire by the time he was 30 or he was going to jump off the tallest building in Omaha, uh, <laughs> which I guess was tall enough to do some damage and which horrified people. But so this, it, it wasn't by accident that he became, if you, um, when I talked to his former fraternity brothers, they said that they, they would have this game at, at fraternity nights. They would gather around a semicircle and listen and ask him questions. They lob him questions. They just liked to hear him talk. He was such a good talker, such a good explainer. And then I thought of the this is the guy who would have 40,000 people come to his annual meeting because people right. love to hear him talk, the great explainer. Um, there was just something intrinsic and inherent about the person uh, that that has come out in his career. So it, it was just fun to uncover these steps all along the way. It was all of a piece. Um the, the Warren Buffett, who hangs on to his stocks for so long, you know, forever being his lo- favorite holding period, as he says, and, and, and often lives by, he's the guy who never changes his foods, never changes his restaurants, still lives in the same house he lived 50 years ago, still works on that street in Omaha. Uh, so it, 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 the biography was a... There's no Warren Buffett at work and Warren Buffett at home. It's just Warren Buffett. There's one guy. There's right. one guy. And, you know, you'd hear about him and his wife going out to dinner and uh, the couple good friends are entertaining them. And after 20 minutes, Warren's off in a side room reading an annual report. That's his dinner. Mm -hmm. What now today, I think Charlie Munger has really come into his own. He's really regarded as an equal partner to Buffett, although I don't know how widespread that belief either is today or, or certainly was 10 or 20 years ago. What was your thought process with Munger as his partner when you were researching uh, Buffett? I don't think Munger uh, is or was an equal partner in the sense that uh, overwhelmingly the bulk of the ideas that end up in uh, Berkshire, and I'm a shareholder, I should say, full disclosure, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, overwhelmingly they come from Warren. But um, Charlie's unique ability, and it is unique with regard to Warren, is he can tell him he's full of you-know-what. Uh, Not a lot of people can. He is fearless. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, Warren used to call him, I think I use this line in the book, the abominable no man. Uh, <laughs> but Charlie's not afraid to say, Warren, you're full of it. This is wrong. This is crazy. I don't like this. And so they just have this, you know, freewheeling relationship like you and I are talking. You know, we're not this afraid of whatever. conversation. And uh, whereas... Um, it may be one of the longest-running partnerships I'm aware of. They've been working together for how long? They've been working together since the mid-'70s. Okay. So you're talking 40-plus years? Yeah, yeah, you're talking 40-plus years. Um, how many partnerships... And they, were, and they were good friends from the late-'60s. Uh, uh, Munger was at Blue Chip Stamps. At some point, I believe in the early-'70s, Blue Chip merges into uh, to Berkshire Hathaway. So they had a sort of an unofficial partnership going on. Mm-hmm. And then at some point they're in the same company and it's an official relationship. Uh, how many people are, you know, Warren's now run Berkshire. This is the 50th anniversary. Munger's been there for virtually all of it. You know, so the, the record of management consistency alone unheard of. is unheard of, probably never to be replicated. 
But Munger himself is scarily bright. Mm-hmm. He has terrific instincts about business. Uh, he has a BS uh, monitor or detector, mm-hmm. you know, that is second to none. Great instincts, great perspective, Gre- great philosophy. Great instincts, and he's not so diplomatic. In fact, he's not no. diplomatic at all. That that's the beauty. He just says what he thinks, and so, let the chips fall where they may. So Warren is not like Warren. Doesn't like conflict. Doesn't want to hurt people's feelings. Uh, send Charlie out there to give him the send, bad news. Send Charlie out there to give him the bad news. Um, but so that that's the dynamic. There's but, a little Lennon and McCartney there. They're each different, two geniuses in their own way. Yeah, but I I don't think it's right to look at them as um, Warren is the executive mm-hmm. operator. He's the guy who's coming up uh, with most of the ideas when uh, one of the units wants to, uh, say, invest more capital. Uh, Warren's making that decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that sounds like a good project, or no, uh, you can dividend that money back to Omaha, thank you. We'll find something better to do with it. Mm-hmm. Those are Warren's decisions. But the tough decisions, he's they have a running conversation, and so Charlie's going to be in on uh, all of those. He took C's candy to Warren. That was, uh, of course, California candy. That was an early uh, company. He's taken you know, plenty of others over the years. But the... the he was very influential also early on when Warren made something of a switch, um, not in his philosophy, but in his approach in being willing to pay up uh, more for good business as distinct from paying as distinct from only paying really low prices for businesses that naturally weren't so good. Right. And, and Munger's discussed that philosophy as a a good business has a value that it's very hard to. Um, either recognize or, or easy to underestimate the value of a really good business that even a terrible management it's, team it's, can't mess it's up. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, what is it worth to, to be seized candy in an airport in those stands? Uh, would you pay more for it than, uh, you know, Joe's candy someone's never heard of? Mm-hmm. You, you would pay more for it. Now, how much more? That That's an open question. But Munger really worked on Now, Phil Fisher, the great investor, was another person who worked on Buffett uh, who, you know, who stuffed Buffett read and influenced him in that regard and moved him away from the strict Ben Graham uh, buying stuff for, you know, just less than the cash value of the securities mm-hmm. and so on. So when you were researching this, you spent a lot of time in, in Omaha, Nebraska? Spent what, a lot of time in Omaha. What, what was that like? And, and what was it like speaking to all these local families who had known young Warren as a kid? The, the first thing that was interesting to me about Omaha was if you come from the East, and I came from New York, uh, you think of Omaha as a complete hayseed place. Uh, you know, really- I think of Mutual of Omaha as the first thing that pops okay. into my head. But I'm of the age where that show was on Sunday nights right. when I was a kid. And so that's been drilled into my head for however many years of my youth. So I thought of it as purely the sticks. Mm-hmm. And what I saw was it's a real city, yeah, a real downtown. Warren Buffett was not a farmer. His father was. His father was a stockbroker. And... Um, I, I say that because there was this tendency to to say that to treat Warren Buffett as some savant who you know Wizard of Oz who mm-hmm. emerged on the plains or something, but he was not a farm boy. He was not a hayseed. Stockbroker's son grew up in an urban area or well, not too far from an urban area. Completely an urban area, mm-hmm. and he roamed the streets of Omaha. He went to his father's uh, you know stockbrokering office. He was not uh, uh, some uh, you know Carlos Castaneda. Uh, uh, you know, agrarian savant or something, right? Um, and that was that was the, the the thing that struck me about Omaha. It was and for you know, if you're in Nebraska, it's a big city. You know, he was following the baseball teams and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
uh, following the stock market and so on as, as a kid. Uh, the, the research in Omaha, just all these people who knew him and the story never changed. He, he thought about nothing but making money morning, noon, and night, and he had this infectious enthusiasm so that everybody he knew at every stage of his life got caught up in it. And I, you know, I, for instance, this idea that, you know, to, to, to drum home the point how it was there all along, he used to say that he liked his favorite business would be a Monopoly toll bridge. Okay, so because, mm-hmm. you know, Monopoly toll bridge, you got to get over the bridge. He's the only one. They can set the toll. So he's sitting pretty, right? So it turns out I was interviewing, I'll never forget this. His, he had a friend named Bob Russell he grew up with. They were mm-hmm. friends, particularly when he was 10, 11, 12 around there. Bob Russell's mother was still living when I, when I was researching the book. And she said, and they, they had a house that overlooked a main thoroughfare in, uh, in Omaha where a trolley went by. And they had a porch. So they'd sit on the porch, drink lemonades, and watch the trolley. And Mrs. Russell said, he used to sit there and say, if only you could set up a toll booth, Mrs. Russell. Now, charge, what, charge the trolley for what going tw- by. What 12-year-old thinks of this? You know, it's more like, give me another lemonade, but not Warren Buffett. He's thinking of setting up a toll booth on a busy street, uh, you know, when he's 12 years old. And so That's funny. That, that was just something in him that, that, that you know, and so I, as I wrote the book, I sort of thought that regardless of what society he'd been born into, um, you know, he would have been the numbers guy, the financial guy. He was born to do it. So before I get into some of my favorite questions, I'm compelled to ask, what's the next book we're going to see from you? The next book will be a history. I'm going over a few ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not in a position to, to tell you which one. you enjoyed this sort of deep dive you I did really, with America's Bank? I really loved um, late 19th century, early 20th century. There's a sort of a larger-than-life quality, a Gilded Age, progressive era, because um, really everything else I've read of yours was sort of teared right off the the headlines. or very yeah, contemporary. Yeah, but you know, if you look at those books, there's there's a lot of history in all of them. If you there's a lot of context which requires understanding the history yeah. of the history of markets, the history of pension funds, the history of you know Warren Buffett risk. goes back to Ben Graham, goes back to his father mm-hmm. in the 1930s. But you can only put so much history in these books. Um, if you go back to uh, the early 1900s. They're worried about inequality. You know, they're worried about big corporations, about America becoming a mm-hmm. sterile, soulless place run by far-off, remote corporations. Well, thank goodness we avoided that faith. Thank God. So sound familiar? <laughs> so there's something about, uh, in the Gilded Age, they're horrified. All of a sudden, they're millionaires. Uh, you know, uh, never used to have those. So these periods um, both hold a fascination for me, and I think they're particularly resonant today. So it'll be something in that area again. That sounds interesting. Let me go, because I know I can't keep you forever, although you and I could keep chatting about this stuff for a long time. Let's talk a little bit about, these are questions I ask all my guests, and I always get some fascinating answers. You mentioned your father was an influence on you. Who were some of your other early mentors? Hmm. Um, I had uh, some very good editors, uh, you know, along the way uh, in newspapers, um, both um, Norm Perlstein at the Journal. Oh, sure. And Paul Steiger. Oh, uh, so you had some real terrific rock star ter- legends ter- ter- terrific, of editorial. Terrific uh, editors uh, at the Journal. I'm hesitating because I don't want to uh, forget anybody. You'll get um, an angry email. You'll yeah, know I'll, who I'll you get left an angry out. email. 
Um, you know, Warren Buffett's letters were uh, an education in business, uh, you know. I went to grad school with Lawrence Cunningham, yeah. who wrote that book, The yeah. Essays of Warren yeah. Buffett, which was amazing that I was in grad school saying, what? why are you publishing on this? This is a, a, a law school. This is a, and yet it turned out to be tremendously insightful idea before there were really a lot of, that was back before you could, couldn't go on to Edgar and pull down, or right. the website, right. and pull down the actual uh, letters. He bound, had them bound, published, and they were a huge success. So when I was reading those letters, the contrast, reading those letters and riding the herd in the street every day and being involved in how you know, the average company was doing things, and then I go back and read the letters, and the contrast was such that um, that was also an education. I, I saw... Um, that what he was preaching was um, so unusual in Wall Street that, you know, most annual reports, they're written by consultants, uh, they're full of malarkey, mm -hmm. uh, they're spinning everything. Um, and he's just out laying it the way it is. You know, they're, they're trying to game their earnings. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there was just so much that was different. And, and, and the combination of reading those letters and being involved in the everyday workaday uh, Wall Street experience was an educational. Did you get to speak to Buffett for the book? Very little. Um, Buffett didn't cooperate. Um, he said in the beginning that he said that he didn't stop people or discourage them or encourage them. He just said, that's, you know, you, you do what you can do. He said, it'll work better for me and it'll work better for you too. Huh, and, um, that's interesting. It was interesting. And, 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 do you think that was right? You know, I didn't at the time. I thought, thanks a well, lot. Well, yeah. I thought, thanks <laughs> a lot, Warren. He actually said, um, he said he didn't want to give me uh, his own stuff because he was saving it for his book and I would cut into his sales. And I said, you know, <laughs> come on, Warren. That's hilarious. But uh, By the way, many a truth is spoken in jest and he is only half joking when he says that. I don't, I don't doubt it. But, but to answer your other question, I did come to agree with him because I think had, had I sat down for interview after interview with him, the book would have come out in his words and with his take and it would have been his conception of his life. And by not talking to him and talking to everyone else around him, I got to tell the story as I would tell it. Mm -hmm. And I, so, yes, in the end, I think it was worked best for both of us. I, I'm going to have to get you his e get from you his email address and, and invite him to do the show the next time he's in New York because I know he's got two hours to kill anytime, uh, anytime he wants. Um, what are some of your favorite books? And I'm referring to ones that you didn't write. What other books have you enjoyed? Uh, finance books, uh, boy, I'm going to forget. Could be finance, could be other books, but just not by Roger Lowenstein. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with, you know, The Great Crash uh, by John Kenneth Galbraith. Sure. Um, is a book that I've always loved. Uh, read it um, again and again. Boy, it reads like a, just a lemon drop of a book melts in your mouth. And it, and it could have been written yesterday. That's the thing that's amazing. Could have been written yesterday. Um you know, there's a book, uh, I read a lot of business books, and um, usually because I review them. Mm -hmm. Most of them don't go on the small shelf of ones I'd recommend. Right. It's a book uh, by an Italian economist, Pietro Rivoli, The Travels of a T-Shirt. The uh, Travels of a T-Shirt. Anybody wants to um, have fun with a book on trade, on cotton, I mean really have fun. It opens up a world uh, you never thought was there. Huh, that's fascinating. I just, just uh, love the book. Uh, I love John Brooks's books on um, Wall Street. Um, what? Well, give me a title. Uh, let's see the one, the Go Go Years about the oh um, sure about the sixties. Yep. And, um, 
Once in Galconda. I have that on uh, my bookshelf, unread, waiting yeah, in my queue. Um, about um, uh, the 1930s. Um, the, Ra- the Robber Barons by Matthew... Um, who, what's the last name of that author? But, I've seen that um, book. I've never read so that, that either. That's you're you're giving me homework to do. You know, that's a kind of a populist take, but mm-hmm. it uh, it'll it'll be resonant today. Um, I love uh, Ron Chernow's The House of Morgan and Hamilton and his other books. So, My head of research, yeah. Mike Batnick, just finished that and cannot stop raving. He's yeah. working his way through all of Chernow's book. Yeah. He's just thrilled to death. They're with all them. great. Um, so there's a you know a starting list for for. Christmas buys. House of Morgan. And, of course, America's Bank. Uh, by the way, did you ever get around? So when I'm working on something, I try not to read a book on the same to- title because topic because it influences your perspective. Your, your, you want to stay away from it. But I adored Lords of Finance, and I'm wondering if you read that when you were doing Absolutely. Lords of Finance is a great book. This me. book is like one of the, so that involves four so I central that. bankers. I should have And this is that. like one bank of yes. the four. Like this is a giant digression from Lords of Finance. Lords of Finance is Liaquid Ahmed's Pulitzer yes. Prize winner. Amazing. Every book. bit deserving of a Pulitzer mm-hmm. Prize. It is a terrific book. And talk about a guy who can tell a story and make it come to life. You know, should be on any financial reader shortlist. Really just a, a tremendous, tremendous um, book. Let me keep going through my last few questions. Um, so you've been writing professionally for 30 years, is that right? Well, uh, I started out at the Newport News Times Herald in 1976. So we're so 40 years. 40 years next year, yeah. So yeah. let me ask you a question. What has changed in three hours or less since you've become a writer for, for better or worse? Well, um, finance and business are much hotter topics. Than they much used, bigger much section. Bigger. Much, you know, there were no finance sections when I started out. There was uh-huh. a Wall Street Journal and basically nothing else. There were no financial shows. Mm-hmm. There was no Bloomberg. Right. Um, so that's just become much more central to the way we live and work. Um, obviously, the, the news business itself has become way more challenged. For sure. You know, by the internet. Uh, you know, you Listeners don't need um, an education in that. When Warren Buffett went into the business, n- newspapers were a so-called monopoly toll bridge. You know, the uh, only way to get to advertisers now is he is he still part of, own part of the Washington Post, or is that now that no, Bezos they, bought no, it? No, Bezos bought it, but so he's, he's still out owns, of it. He still owns Buffalo Evening News, and he owns a, a local paper in Omaha. So he's still in the in the business. A local paper in Omaha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the world. The World Herald. So, um, uh, but um, those are the. Those are the biggest, I mean, the the number of news venues, the extent of the competition. You know, when I started out at the Journal, which was in 79, you could spend a long time on a story. Now the competition is just so out there, and it's, so that that's a lot different than it used to be. I find when I'm writing something to po- just do a blog post, yeah. a little throwaway 200-word blog post, I used to schedule stuff around a certain rhythm. I like this sort of thing on Tuesday nights, and I like this on Friday mornings. And I find if I do that, it's in the ether. Somebody is going to write about it beforehand. And And so you can't, you have to just publish so many more choices about what to read. You can't read every blog. You can't read impossible. Yeah. So there's an overwhelming amount of stuff. So that's historically what's changed. What do you see going forward for media and journalism and book publishing in the future? 
you know, I think they'll be around for longer than than the worst, the the most pessimistic prognosticators say. Uh, in indie bookstores are you know making a comeback. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the percentage of books that are being read in print, as distinct from digitally, has actually leveled off, and I think and has ticked up uh, pretty smartly. Um, you know, newspapers I don't know about. Uh, I think Charlie Munger has said that that a newspaper's most loyal readers are you know to be found in the cemeteries or something, some, some <laughs> something like that. Newspapers are obviously evolving. People like Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post, trying so to figure out. So there'll be a few out, vanity projects that all. So you'll have the Times, the Journal, the Post, and a handful of other small you know, there's papers. Pro- Publica is is a nonprofit uh-huh. formula, and I think the I person th- who took the Hurt on the Street column after you, Jesse Eisinger, is right, publishing is there. So I think the 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 formulas are still, you know, it's still we're still experimenting with that, and we don't. I don't. I certainly don't know, and I don't think anyone knows what the news universe will look like, except to say that people are still hungry, very hungry for news. A lot of people want to go in the news business. It'll exist. We just don't know the form. We don't know what it's going to look like. So a millennial or a recent college graduate is beginning their career, and they want to be a writer or a journalist. What sort of advice would you give them? The advice I give, I get asked that a lot, is have a specialty. These days, I think it's very important not just to be a generalist. You know, know all you can about finance, know all you can about sports, know all you can about ballet, know all you can about energy or global warming or whatever it is, but be someone who whatever the news venue is, is gonna say, we need an expert in whatever that is, and there'll be a place for you. I don't think the, you know, these days it's tough to go in and say, you know, Johnny Apple used to say at the Times, you gotta be able to ride a five car fatal. And, and, and that's true, but these days you gotta be able to do more than that. Last question, what is it you know about Wall Street and finance today that you wish you knew when you started 40 years ago? You know, I don't think, I mean, I, I know now how repetitive it is, how how, how cyclical it is, how, Everything as we talked about before, again. how the lessons don't get learned. But there's no way, it's not like you can transport that experience and, and uh, you know, put it into some pill and, and, and give it to a 22-year-old. And um, he'll absorb it. On the other hand, that's what makes it fun. You know, he or she will go out and learn it from themselves. And that's so. Um, you, you but what have you learned that you wish you knew when you started? What little tidbit of knowledge would have made your life easier? I, I guess I'm a little more cynical. I'm, I'm surprised at how often, um, to avoid using a three letter word, uh, people don't tell the truth. Um, uh, surprised at how often people will spin. Uh, you know, there there are a lot of slippery characters out there, and, mm-hmm. and um, I tend to be trustworthy and sometimes naive, and, and I'm surprised at how often uh, people would take advantage of that. And it would have been nice to know that starting your career. Roger, this has been great. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, we've been speaking with Roger Lowenstein. He is the author of the new book, America's Bank. The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve, which you can find at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent booksellers everywhere. You can read more of Roger's work at rogerlowenstein.com. Check out my daily column, bloombergview.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ritholtz. The blog is ritholtz.com. I want to thank Charlie Vollmer, my producer, and Mike Batnick, my head of research. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see all 70-something or 60-something 
previous shows we've done. They're all available for download, and they're all commercial-free and free. Uh, thank you for listening. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here.